0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Mind Maladies podcast. Today, we have Dr. Brewitt on. Um, So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your accomplishments.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Dr. Lindsay Brewitt and I'm an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry in the School of Medicine at University of California, San Francisco. Um, And one of my areas of specialization is the treatment of child, young adult, and adolescent eating disorders. Um, And I'm a clinician. I provide direct patient care in that area. I also do research on eating disorders and lead um, our eating disorders program at San Francisco General Hospital, which is our public hospital at UCSF.
0: Mm -hmm. During your research, how would you say the research on eating disorders has changed throughout the years?
1: Yeah. So there's been some really exciting changes that have been happening. I think the biggest one that stands out to me is that the field of eating disorders has a really unfortunate history of um, clinicians and other folks in the field blaming parents and blaming families for the development of eating disorders. And we know at this point really well that that's not the case. Um, And that, in fact, parents and other carers, other family members are often the most crucial part of recovery for folks with eating disorders. And, and that has shifted. So our treatments now, you know, the leading evidence-based treatments do emphasize family involvement, the involvement of loved ones, which is crucial for, for the recovery of folks who are impacted.
0: So just as a brief introduction to the topic of eating disorders, can you kind of explain that the various types of eating disorders and um, the early signs?
1: Absolutely. So I, I think of eating disorders as kind of clumping in three different categories. Um, and so there's a group of eating disorders that tend to be, though not always associated with some body image concerns. And those are names like anorexia nervosa, atypical anorexia nervosa, which usually involve a significant amount of weight loss, usually through, um, restriction of eating or compensatory behaviors like hyper-exercise or vomiting. Um, this category can also include um, illnesses like binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa, which involve binge episodes, so eating large amounts of food and feeling a loss of control. Um, and in the case of bulimia nervosa, that's accompanied by a set of compensatory behaviors. Sometimes that's purposeful vomiting, over exercise, fasting, things like that. Um, A separate category that I think of is what's called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And this is not as well known because it is a newer diagnosis. So it didn't hit our um, diagnostic manual until 2013. And basically ARFID involves one or more of a set of symptoms. So um, sometimes people with ARFID experience a really significantly restricted food repertoire. So they might look like very picky eaters and maybe only have sort of a small handful of foods that they'll eat. Um, They may also have a low appetite or not seem very interested in food, which is different from sort of how most humans experience food. Most of us are pretty driven by food and find it rewarding most of the time. Or folks with ARFID may experience um, fear about aversive consequences of eating. So they may fear choking or vomiting associated with eating. Folks with ARFID can have one or two or all three of these characteristics. Um, And then we also have some Other types of eating disorders, which we don't see as commonly in our clinic, Um, one is called pica, where folks may eat um, non-food materials like dirt or paint. Um, Another is rumination disorder, where folks may experience a regurgitation of food that's involuntary. Um, and then we also have a large number of folks who don't fit neatly into one of these diagnostic categories, and they may be diagnosed with what we would call an other specified eating disorder, which basically means that they have clinically significant eating disorder symptoms, um, but they may have symptoms from a variety of categories.
0: Yeah. So before we go into what these people with these eating disorders kind of feel and their like mental processes, um, can we kind of talk about. What are some of the factors that may be causing eating disorders? Like, is there a disproportionate amount of people with eating disorders within the genders? Like, do males or females have a preconception sort of eating disorders?
1: Great question. So we think that when we look at the population of folks with eating disorders, um, folks who identify as male make up about twenty-five to forty percent of that population. Um, we know that. Um, folks who are male identified tend to be underdiagnosed with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to see less of them in treatment. And there's a real misconception out there that eating disorders are really a female issue when that's not the case.
0: Yeah. That could actually increase the stigma surrounding eating disorders, especially absolutely. in males that feel like it's not a masculine a, trait. And absolutely.
1: That's, not... that's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and another area that, you know, we're becoming increasingly aware of is that folks who are gender non-binary or transgender have higher rates of eating disorders when we compare them to the rest of the population. Um, and so that is also a crucial group that we need to pay special attention to.
0: Okay. That's interesting. I never thought that there'd be like a difference between genders like that?
1: Yeah, we, we think it's likely for probably two reasons, and certainly it differs from, from individual to individual, but, um, there may be some emphasis on, um, changing one's body to look more Mm -hmm. like one's gender identity. And so that may be one factor. Another factor is likely, um, that unfortunately folks who, um, our gender non-binary, transgender tend to be stigmatized, tend to be, can be mistreated in our society. Um, And so there's a sort of minority stress factor that likely contributes to sort of a general increase in mental health concerns among that
0: population. Would you say there's a genetic component to causing eating disorders as well?
1: Yes. Um, so we've known for a while that eating disorders tend to run in families. And there's some exciting new genetic research coming from a researcher named Dr. Cindy Bulick at the University of North Carolina. And she's done some, some large genetic studies on folks with um, anorexia nervosa in particular and shown associations among risk for eating disorder and also risk um, for anxiety and certain metabolic conditions that seem to run in families. And so I expect that we'll learn a lot more about the genetic components over the coming years, but that's an exciting kind of new frontier.
0: Yeah, totally. So this is kind of a bigger topic in the topic of eating disorders, but how has social media played a role in causing the variety of eating disorders?
1: Yeah, we know, you know, there's some research to demonstrate pretty clearly that. Anytime there's an increased emphasis on the thin ideal or a particular body type in general, that eating disorder rates seem to increase. So it doesn't explain eating disorders. They occur without an emphasis on the thin ideal, um, but they do seem to increase. Um, And we have seen in sort of some smaller studies, more preliminary studies, that an increased um, increased exposure to the thin ideal, which can happen through social media, does seem to um, increase risk for eating disorders and increased distress among those with eating disorders.
0: Would you say that people that do get affected by social media are primarily male or female or is there no indication that there is a that there is any relation or correlation?
1: That's a good question that I actually don't know the answer to. I would expect that it would be true for both groups, but I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. You kind of touched on this earlier, so can you kind of go over more misconceptions of eating disorders?
1: Yeah. I would say the biggest one um, and I talked a little bit about gender, but there's been Um, a big misconception that eating disorders primarily occur amongst folks who are female identified, also thin, also white, and tend to be wealthy. Um, We know that this is untrue. Um, there's some pretty clear research that, that demonstrates that eating disorders don't discriminate they impact folks of all racial and ethnic identities and from all socioeconomic groups um, and some studies have actually shown higher rates of certain types of eating disorders among Latinx and black adolescents when compared to other racial and ethnic groups um, We know however that people of color and people with lower incomes are significantly less likely to be screened for eating disorders by by their treatment providers, and significantly less likely to be referred for treatment and have access to high-quality care. So, um, this is a huge problem in terms of access to care for for all members of our society.
0: I always touch on misconceptions on the podcast because I believe it's really big source of most of the stigma around the mental illness itself. Yeah, because it's what leads people to believe one one thing that's not necessarily true for everyone.
1: I'm so glad you're highlighting that, and I think that you know, for individuals with eating disorders who, Mm -hmm. where their identity doesn't match up with other people's assumption about eating disorders, they, they experience even more challenges in some cases than, than other folks. And, you know, not to compare, that's maybe not necessarily fair, but um, they may have less access to treatment. They may, um, you know, not be taken seriously by, by the people that they Mm -hmm. need to um, support them.
0: Exactly. So, kind of transitioning to people that have eating disorders, like what their thought processes and their mental state kind of is. Can you kind of explain first the changes in the brain that we know to occur in people that have that suffer from eating disorders?
1: Yes, there's a number of um, symptoms or characteristics that tend to occur, when, specifically when people are malnourished um, and not getting regular nutrition, and these include things like apathy poor concentration, depressed mood, irritability, increased anxiety, um, obsessionality, also an increased focus on body image and food, which is sort of interesting. So some of the, um, difficulties that we see in folks with eating disorders like hyperfocus on calorie counts or types of food or, or on the body, those are actually a direct result of malnutrition and, and do tend to improve with improved nutrition. Um, in terms of other um, brain abnormalities, we see signs of cognitive impairment in folks with eating disorders in performing daily tasks, um, also on neuropsychological testing. And when we look at imaging studies of brains um, with folks with and without eating disorders, we actually see a reduction in the size of the brain. Um, And this occurs fairly early in the course um, of eating disorders, particularly anorexia nervosa. We see a reduction in the size of white and gray matter in the brain and also enlargement of ventricles. Um, Most of that does seem to improve with weight restoration, although we're not sure yet whether um, gray matter Actually improves in the brain.
0: Can you kind of explain the certain emotions that someone who's suffering from an eating disorder would kind of feel like they feel like trapped in their situation? Like what, what kind of feelings would be going through their head?
1: Yeah. You know, I think that um, one of the most challenging things with eating disorders for individuals who experience them is that uh, depending on the type of eating disorder in somebody's particular presentation, they may not always feel like there's a problem. Um, and you know other people around them may be very concerned and, and encouraging them to seek care and, and to increase nutrition, et cetera. Um, and they may have difficulty seeing that there are challenges. And that's because of these impacts on the brain that I mentioned. Um, as time goes on, or kind of depending on people's personal journey, uh, when people are aware that there is a challenge and and actively working on that, they may feel trapped, like you're describing. They may feel like you know intellectually they understand, for example, the the importance of eating regularly and and reducing exercise and increasing rest, um, but it may be very very hard for them to to actually implement those changes because they may experience severe anxiety when they say eat a food that's challenging for them or eat regularly or stay restful. And so that's why um, this family supporter or or supportive loved ones is so, so crucial because it can be really hard for folks to make changes on their own through no fault of their own.
0: What efforts are currently underway to help improve the treatment of eating disorders?
1: Yeah, so... I think there's some really exciting efforts underway. So there's many, many efforts are underway to try to improve our existing treatments, um, which which mostly involve therapy, um, kind of traditional talk therapy or family therapies. And we are actively looking at ways to refine those treatments to better support those who don't respond well to the existing treatments that we have. There are also some newer types of treatment trials that are exciting, um, such as the use of psychedelic drugs to treat um, eating disorders, which I think is an exciting frontier, which I'm, I haven't been involved in that research, but I'm excited to read about it as it, as it evolves.
0: Mm-hmm. So how common actually are eating disorders in the population and when do they, what ages do they typically start to develop?
1: They impact about 10% of the population and they tend to start in the teen years around puberty.
0: Mm -hmm. Is there a chance it could start much later in your adult life too?
1: It could. We don't see that as commonly, um, but it certainly could.
0: Um, What should someone that is, they think or feel they might be suffering from an eating disorder do if they are unsure?
1: Yeah. You know, I think if somebody has any concern at all, they should, they should seek help, um, and so ideally, that's talking with somebody they trust. If they're a young person, ideally, talking with an adult they trust, whether that's a parent or a teacher, a counselor at school, or a, or a um, physician. Um, and if somebody is an adult or you know a, a parent themselves worried about their young person, I would always suggest a good starting place is talking to their to their primary care provider about their concerns.
0: So, what should someone that maybe? Is feeling trapped and like they're unsure if they can talk to their parents, talk to their counselors. What what can they what are some methods they can kind of do to help themselves?
1: Yeah. So there's there's some great online resources. One in particular is NIDA or the National Eating Disorders Association. They have a, a great website with many resources, and they also have a helpline where people can call in and actually talk to somebody. Yeah, um,
0: that's great.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and then many geographical areas also have some local resources as well.
0: Uh, what do those resources offer?
1: They may offer, you know, for example, here in the Bay Area, we have um, our program at UCSF, um, where we have some resources on our website, or folks can call and speak with our coordinator and understand whether we could be a fit for them for treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's other kind of programs in the area that have similar resources.
0: How can you help a friend or peer that you Think is suffering from an eating disorder. Yeah.
1: You know, I think expressing one's concern gently and asking if, if the person would be willing to have you help them seek support, which might look like encouraging them to talk with their parents, talking with their parents with them, um, talking with care- caregivers on their behalf helping to connect them to treatment. If talking to caregivers doesn't feel like an option, I think going to um, a school counselor or um, a wellness center, talking to one's own physician about kind of resources and what to do if they're concerned, those could all be good options. And then I think asking them if there's anything that you can do to support their recovery. So examples of that might be having meals together or checking in with them about whether they've eaten or whether they're staying restful. Um, but I would want to only do that with that person's consent. So really following their lead about what feels helpful.
0: Yeah. I know a lot of people, especially like in my area, they like, they don't particularly like talking to the school counselors. Yeah. Um, there's always a concern they're going to tell their parents and like, that's all the whole reason they're talking to the counselor not their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so for them, like, especially they feel emphasis on feeling trapped is like taken to a new level because they just don't know who to talk to and they don't know if they can talk to their physician or like, so it's like a really bad situation that kind of like feeds itself and like makes itself worse.
1: Yeah. That is so challenging when people feel like they're not getting the support that they're, that they're aiming for from, from Mm -hmm. their network. I mean, I think that, um, Seeking national resources like NIDA might be a good place to start if people aren't yeah. yet feeling willing to talk with others in, in their support network. I, I will yeah. say, you know, of course, everybody's situation is different and certainly that are there are families that have difficulties supporting young people effectively, and I, I have met with a lot of young people who initially feel really apprehensive about talking with an adult about their concerns. Um, and then once they do, they, they feel a big weight off and they feel like it's a relief to be able to mm-hmm. connect to treatment and have the support they need. So, you know, I, again, I, I emphasize that everybody's situation is different and, and that's not safe for everybody, but I do think that sometimes people's fears about what may happen if they tell the truth or, or express their concerns sometimes are, are bigger than kind of what actually happens. Sometimes it's more helpful than they think.
0: Do you have any final words of advice to anyone that is suffering with an eating disorder right now?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think connecting to treatment as quickly as possible. We know that early intervention is the best predictor of folks being able to make a full recovery and and not struggle throughout their life. And so really, you know, encourage people to seek support and and to talk with, with the people that care about them. Um, and I think more broadly, just for individuals in general, I mean, we live in a culture. Many of us live in a culture that's steeped in messages about dieting and about weight and shape and size and weight stigma and all of that. And we know that dieting is one of the most powerful predictors of eating disorders and disordered eating. Um, and we also know that it's it's not an effective way for people to lose weight, and, and never really recommended. Um, and so we really encourage people to avoid dieting if at all. Possible possible
0: um, A final question I'd like to end on is how do you think that the stigma surrounding eating disorders can be diminished?
1: I think talking about it. I think that um, you know more people talking about their experiences, especially people that um, maybe have identities that are, that are different than kind of what people assume are what eating disorders look like, I think that that is really yeah. our, our, our ticket out of stigma or or our way to reduce stigma.
0: Yeah, totally. Like, if you see more men or more um, transgender people speaking about their experience, it could totally kind of uh, lead to the downfall of those um, misconceptions that everyone
1: Exactly. Has.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, that is all I have for you today, Dr. Brewitt. Um, thank you so much for talking about this to me. Um, I really value your time.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It was great to sit down and talk.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure having you. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you check out the link in the description to the Mind Maladies website. See you guys in the next episode.